0: Blog
1: Talk Radio
2: go back in time to seasons pass when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday fighting for one more first down one more yard gain one final score which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron tonight we'll explore the world of gridiron greats welcome to gridiron greats football history and its memorabilia and the gridiron greats publishing and broadcasting network in conjunction with swick enterprises we're live from Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150 plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web app, Gridiron Greats Magazine. It is at this time... I'd like to introduce my special guest, co-host, a senior contributing writer to Good Iron Rates Magazine, a football memorabilia and card collector and historian that has one of the most advanced collections in the country, of pre-World War II items in particular, the 1925 Pottsville Maroons. Our friend to our show and the magazine, I'd like to welcome once again, Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff, welcome to the show this evening. Thanks,
3: Bob. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you again. I'm looking forward to uh, talking football this morning.
2: Sounds good. And uh, just to fill everyone in, we are are broadcasting in a very early morning time frame to fit everyone's schedule and to get another podcast out. So I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule early morning and uh, doing our show filling in for Joe. Uh something we or has interested me since I moved down here and I've been going through box after box of my collection is a pondering question if we did it all over again, if we started our collections all over again, what would we do first? What would we do differently Where and what and how? would we proceed with our collections at a different time? And Jeff, I'm going to hand off to you and ask for your opinion and your thoughts about this question. Yeah, it's a great question, Bob. And
3: when you posed it a couple of days ago, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question before. And so I'm, I'm glad you didn't put me on the spot and just throw it out there because <laughs> uh, bias <laughs> might've been uh, not very well thought out, but, I guess to me, I'm just thinking it through, um, you know, there's an old saying out there that, um, you know, youth is wasted on the young. You've probably heard that, right? How much better Correct. would your youth Correct. be if you had all the knowledge you have today, you know, and you can go back Correct. to your childhood and apply it? And it's kind of what you're asking, right? Um, you know, what, based on what we know today or what we've learned or what we like or what we've evolved to, <clears throat> how would that change? you know, collecting. For me personally, it's pretty, pretty simple once I thought it through. And obviously, like a lot of collectors, when I got back into the hobby over a decade ago, you know, I was, I was focused on expanding what I had put together as a child. That's usually the way people get into the hobby or get back into the hobby. But, you know, in hindsight, if I had known what I knew today, there was no question in my mind that my focus would have been on let's call it pre-war professional football. So everything mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the day that Pudge Heffelfinger, you know, signed that contract to be what today is, you know, the person who is considered at least the first recognizable pro in 1892 up through right into the early days of the NFL, that era, the players, the teams, you know, whether it's in the NFL or out of the NFL, those stories just fascinate me and i love the memorabilia from that era um and those teams and i think i would definitely i would concentrate a lot more from the start in that era and you know on pro football even before the nfl um or some initial thoughts how
2: about you well it's it's interesting for me, thinking back of uh, my own collecting journey, and uh, you know, it's a, it's it's hot. And I do agree with you 110. If I knew now at 63, um what I if if I knew, knew when I was in my 20s what I know now at sixty man oh man, uh, I would have retired years ago and I would have been on easy <laughs> street. But at the same time, collecting wise, I would have had an incredible, incredible collection, and I think. What I would have done differently is, in the 1960s, try to somehow understand and research what or when cards actually were first printed for football, meaning understand that there were the Bowmans out there, there were the Leafs, there were the Chickles, there were the Mayos, and somehow start to collect those more um more completely during the 1970s because again as many people know or don't know I didn't realize that there were complete sets of football cards basically into the 1970s mm-hmm. I, I had no idea that that you could actually buy a complete set I, I knew there were that you know the numbering pattern with the checklist somehow justified a complete set So I always go back to the 67 Philadelphia uh, card set, 198 cards. And one of the first cards I got in wax packs, I still remember to this day, was a checklist. And I kept, you know, examining the checklist. And, yes, I did check my checklist when I got cards. And I, I was fascinated that it went up to 198. So, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't put two and two together until later on in life, and basically it was in, wasn't until high school that I um, I perchance happened upon a sport magazine. I'm pretty sure it was Complete Sports Magazine, which was a quarterly publication at the time, and there were ads for for not football card but for baseball card sets to get the complete set of 660 cards or whatever. So then I did a little, I, I started doing a little searching in the magazine and other magazines, and then I finally saw a few football sets complete. And uh, then I realized, okay, so that's the number of cards on the set, so i got to try to figure out now, try to piece together what I'm missing. So the first thing I would have done was to try to, you know, go back um, to earlier card sets. And complete them at a at a much earlier time than what I ended up doing, because again, I pretty much just stayed current in the seventies yeah. uh with my collection, and i was I was much more active in publications at the time, seeing my publications, I loved my publications, I loved my football programs, and along those same lines, I would have actively collected football programs more completely at the time. Because they were much less expensive than than what they, uh, what they peaked at basically during the 90s and, and early uh, 2000s because uh, of the demand for them. But at that time, they were still very affordable. You can find them, so on and so forth. So I think those were the first two things I would have done uh, looking back. Uh, I, I would have tried to educate myself more. However, that was difficult because there was really no well, information. You know there were there were a few hobby co- hobby publications which again I was unaware of completely. Uh, the Trader Speaks and a few other ones, the early SCDs, mm-hmm. Sports, Collect, Sports Collectors Digest. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't aware of those until later, into the 1980s. And then again, card shows really were not prevalent for me until the late 70s, early 80s, when the baseball card boom hit. And like I always said, I would go to a card show and I would ask the dealer if they had any football cards, and then they would secretly pull out a cheese box from the, behind the counter, behind their table, and say, "You know, give me five dollars and get out of here." You know, they didn't want to talk to you about football or whatever, or anything like that. So it was it was much a much different hobby. And again, you know, we both agree if we knew now what, what we if we knew then what we know now it would have been uh, a heck of a lot easier, (laughs) to say the least. And, again, the other thing I probably would have pursued more completely in the 80s were the oddball sets I had collected because I, I again, uh, stumbled upon those with all the insert sets that I had, you know, four, five, six, seven of uh, as the years went on from tops or whatever, and then to put those sets together later on was was more of a challenge to say the least, because again, not everybody kept them, so on and so forth. they became more difficult um to complete, so on and so forth but uh I think your plan was you know preserving the history of the early game uh is perfect to say the least, because you you have done an incredible job of finding items for your collection and really preserving. Early NFL history and early professional football history—it just it just amazes me. So um, it's it's a good a good start to say the least. Um, the other point, trying to trying to figure this out, and I've always tried to—I I used 1989 for football when all the, the new football card sets came out. What is the time period where you think we had inflation in the football card hobby and football memorabilia hobby? And then, when did we have deflation, in your opinion? Now, I'm definitely putting you on the spot with the uh, with that question, but I'm curious about that too.
3: Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Hey, sorry. Yeah. So, um, right. uh, obviously, in the in in the early '90s into the '00s, there was a big run up. After that, you know, it, it fell quite a bit when the housing crisis came, and that's about the time I got back into the hobby. So, you know, there was a lot of depression in in that in the hobby and in that, you know, aught to 2010, 2012. It was a good time to get back into the hobby. Um, and, and then it sputtered along until really COVID, right? I mean, COVID is when, well, we saw a couple bumps that many believe were artificially generated but then, uh, you know, COVID yep. hit and everything went crazy again. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster, I would say.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and again, uh, the hobby has always had ups and downs. It's much more prevalent now because it's reported on daily. And, uh, you know, we can see the trends, so on and so forth. You know, again, I long for the good old days, which will never happen again you go to a card show especially for football cards all commons were nickel stars were 10 cents or a quarter and then you had the major stars were 50 cents 50 cents or a buck and uh you know you didn't have to worry about having uh or collecting a uh for example hundred thousand dollar graded tom brady card or whatever for your collection so uh yeah it's a it's a different different game today than it was years ago but it's it's nice to think back and look back at that and uh, to see what you know, you being a very advanced hobbyist, what your thoughts are. Talk to a couple other people about it also, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting to hear what everybody says about it, and it's a good too good yeah, thing no to doubt. reflect about in our hobby, to I, say the least. I
3: I kind of wish that when I was a kid. Back to your point about when you were a kid, you know, I saw some of the ads for the you know, the national shows that were starting to emerge in the late 70s and some of the even regional shows that were around. And I've read them and just kind of went by them. I don't know why it never crossed my mind. Maybe it's because my world was so local, right, when you're a kid. um, It just never crossed my mind to track those people down, to track, you know, you saw the ads in the back of, you know, magazines. There are people that wanted to trade want lists and things. And for whatever reason, yep. I just never took advantage of that. I I do
2: regret that. Yep, I hear you. I hear you. I was fortunate in the mid late 80s. Two longtime collecting friends, Mike Rich, who we both know well, and uh, the late Pat Mills, who was a writer for me in the mm-hmm. newsletter and with Gridiron Greats, we traded for years also. And uh, it's it's something that expands your collection. I wish more trading was done today, but it is what it is. It's part of a, a past of a hobby, in a way, uh, for many collectors. All right. Our special guest is here, and I'd like to introduce him to our audience. Uh, he was featured as our Dallas Cowboys Super Collector in the winter 2018 issue number 63 of Gridiron Greats Magazine. He has an amazing collection of Dallas Cowboys cards and memorabilia a friend of Bernard Greats Magazine and of the show, I'd like to welcome once again, Mr. Steve Wolf. Steve, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for having me.
2: Hey, Steve. Good to talk to you this uh, early morning.
1: Good morning, Jeff.
2: (laughs) Steve, uh, I know you were on our podcast back in January of 2019, uh, but if you could refresh our audience on how you became a fan of the Dallas Cowboys and started collecting
1: their cards uh and memorabilia. I I was really brainwashed by my parents when I was a kid. <laughs> I uh my 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 um mother's parents moved to Dallas um <clears throat> the year that I was born. So I heard about Dallas from the, the time I could remember. Uh and as I started to watch football, um my grandfather had gone to uh a conference, a seminar, and listened to Tom Landry speak and was really enamored with him as a, a person. Uh, so he he became a Cowboys fan. So I remember lots of afternoons um, as a kid watching Cowboys games with my grandfather. So, you know, it just, it, it, I don't know that I ever really had a choice. <laughs> I've been a Cowboys fan as long as I can remember. <laughs> Brainwashing? Your
3: parents brainwashing you? Never, right? They wouldn't uh, (laughs) try to instill their values and maybe even favorite teams (laughs) on you, would they?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So as far as the collecting goes, you know, that uh, growing up in the 1980s, I would say, geez, easily half of my friends collected cards. It was really, you know, a boom time. Uh, in the hobby. I mean, a lot of us collected baseball cards, but the first packs that I remember opening that were sports packs were 1980 Tops uh, football packs. So, um, you know, that particular set has a special place for me, but uh, football is what I've come back to when I came back to the hobby in 2014. I, I kept my star baseball cards and basketball cards from when I was a kid. But all I've really purchased since I've back in the hobby is is uh, football items
3: that's awesome so tell us a little bit about and I know you picked up some phenomenal things Steve since you were last on this show can you can you talk about some of the new cards you picked up some of the upgrades you picked up for your you know in particular or anything else your cowboy collection
1: sure yeah um I was Really fortunate since I was on the show the last time um, to pick up some, some really rare uh, graded items for my Cowboys sets um, and also you know collaborated with some other collectors, which is you know a great way to find things. But um, I had been running an advertisement, as as you guys know, in Gridiron Greats Magazine looking for a 1963 top Bob Lilly rookie in PSA 9 condition and a... Uh, 1966 Philadelphia gum Bob Hayes rookie in PSA 9 condition and both of those are population nine items There are no PSA 10s in the pop report presently. So really hard to find Hall of Fame rookies are very desirable, especially vintage Hall of Fame rookies so um, I uh, was able to kind of network and find a collector um, who had unfortunately passed and his sister was uh, dealing with his collection and um, it was really a, a educational experience, right, for what happens when, you know, a family member uh, ends up with a collection and doesn't necessarily know what things are worth. So we spent a lot of time, you know, giving her independent sources of uh, pricing. So we showed her vintagecardprices.com, showed her the PSA auction price history, uh, gave her the names of some people in the hobby that, you know, we respect that – you know, would potentially buy the entire collection from her if she wanted to, right? So it took us about a year and a half to work through to the point where she felt comfortable that she was getting the value that the items were worth, right, Um, and that she also – was able to get them to collectors that would appreciate them. Right. So she thought that was what her, her brother would want. So, you know, it was really a neat experience. It took a, it took a long time, right. And a lot of effort and there were ups and downs, but I was super excited to add those two cards to my collection. And along the way um, a friend of mine in the hobby, very good friend of mine was able to add a number of great cards to his collection as well. So, um, you know, I also was able to pick up a, a PSA 10 Bob Lilly 1972 TOPS card um, that is a Pop 2 uh, item, and a 1974 um, Leroy Jordan uh, TOPS PSA 10 card that's a Pop 3 um, card. So there were some things that we also purchased um, from the same collection. Um, which was a tremendous collection. I mean, it would be hard-pressed to think that somebody could put together such a high-quality collection. He had team sets from 1960 through um, the mid-'90s. Um, many of them were the number one team sets for the Cowboys on the PSA registry. Um, so just a tremendous collection um, that had been assembled. So was very fortunate to pick those up. But one of the items that, that I got, I had been looking for um, for just as long as the the Lily rookie and the Hayes rookie, um, the 1976 Town Talk uh, Cliff Harris card. And, you know, a lot of Top viewers, are, yeah, and, and a lot of folks would be, you know, familiar with the Wonder Bread set um, from those years. But the Town Talk set was, was really kind of locally distributed in western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio, um, very limited print run in comparison to the Wonder Bread set. And there's only ever been one of these Cliff Harris cards graded by PSA. I was fortunate enough to log on to eBay one day, and there it was. So I offered the gentleman, you know, three times what he was asking for it. <laughs> he had it listed at $29. Wow. I'm like, I'll, I'll give you $100 for it. So, of course, he was excited to take the $100 and run, and I yeah. was happy to get it, right? So, um, yeah, so that worked out great for me, but um, really happy to to track that down. I had – you know AJ Firestone and some other dealers looking for those for me and i had a, i had found 3 of them in like 8 years and 2 of them had butter stains on them and one of them had a, a bunch of uh, dinged corners and stuff so they were going to grade maybe a 3 at best um so i was really happy to grab the the PSA 8 when i had a chance to so so that's really you know some of the things i've been been fortunate enough to add to my graded collection over the last few years those are awesome. Wow. Steve, real quick question for you
3: on that is, so you mm-hmm. mentioned the trials and tribulations of picking up you know, some of those cards from another collector or a um, family member of a collector. So you mm-hmm. think in the end, was it more rewarding to go through that whole process and then end up with something like that? Or would you think it would be more rewarding if, you know, when you called, they just said, yeah, sure, here you go.
2: Like, what in the
3: end made it more (laughs) rewarding for you and kind of, you know, got you more excited? What what do you think?
1: Um, Honestly, I think it was, even though my wife would probably kill me because she kind of lived vicariously through this whole thing, it it was more rewarding (laughs) after 18 months uh, working something out. Just because, you know, we really wanted to be sensitive to the fact that uh, we wanted her to feel comfortable that she was – you know, getting a fair deal. And we didn't want, you know, our names in the hobby basically associated with somebody that like, oh, they got a steal over here um, because they took advantage of someone, right? So we really wanted to make Mm -hmm. sure that she felt comfortable. Plus, you know, her brother had accumulated this tremendous collection. And she uh, was talking with the Cowboys to see if there was something they could maybe do to honor her and that type of a thing, right? So there was a lot that kind of went into it um, to make sure that she she felt comfortable um, and you know we really didn't know what um, was going to be done in terms of selling individual items versus selling team sets versus selling the entire collection so you know it it uh we we did a lot of game planning and and um, preparation where we we priced out the whole collection, which took us a lot of time. we priced out the individual team wow. sets. We tried to figure out what we would offer for the individual team sets versus the individual items. We tried to figure out, you know, hey, could we, you know, resell some of these um, if we bought more than we really wanted? Um, you know, could we potentially work with others to expand the group and see if maybe there were other collectors that would be willing to take some of the items that we weren't interested in? So there was a lot that went in into it. But in the end, it was it was super rewarding to see the items in hand, and you know the the chase in collecting is really a lot of the excitement and kind of the anticipation and the anxiety that goes with looking for something and trying to work out a deal and and that type of thing. So kind of having that drawn out over a long time was you know challenging while it was happening, but in hindsight, it was it was really rewarding. Uh, that's great, thanks. That's what that's an amazing story
2: Steve. and i and i I tell you, I have had that happen to me so many times over the years uh someone from a family uh collecting family the father grandfather passes, no interest by anybody in the in the family. what do I do with the blah 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 and uh it is very challenging and it can be very frustrating um in a way when you're trying to explain. Sadly, to some collectors or to some family members, well, this part of the collection doesn't have any value. Only this part has value. You know, here are some suggestions for mm-hmm. it. And um, then you have on the opposite side, um, we just want to get rid of it. We don't care. We'll give it to you. Do whatever you want with it. Blah blah blah. blah. And I said, well, I'm not comfortable. If you have value here, I want, I want the family to you know be able to get whatever money can, they can they can get out of it. Then I also have the Family members—they're desperate for cash. What can you do? What what can we do to get the highest value for the collection? And then that's when I basically turn it over to auction—you know, auction friends that I have in the hobby—and say, okay, well, this part you go here, this part should go there, and put them in contact with those people. So I, I applaud your efforts being—you know—very above board and honest with the, the family, with the wife with the collection and uh you know i did follow a lot of what what you were doing with it and uh you know it's tough it's it's a lot of work people don't realize you know a a ethical dealer spends a lot of time pricing out something for a family member or whatever and uh especially in this case and i I know most dealers that i know wouldn't charge the family for the valuation or whatever unless it was for insurance purposes and then and they were being paid by the you know, by the lawyers or whatever on it. So, uh it worked out well for you. It's a, it's a nice story to hear. The hobby, that that stuff still exists and still happens for people who inherit a collection or a family member passes suddenly in a lot of cases and what do you do with the collection type of thing. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's really tough. That's why I tell everybody, you know, no matter what your age, make sure you have some sort of uh game plan for the end there so in case uh god forbid you pass early you know what's what does the family the the wife or the the sons or daughters or grandchildren do with the collection you know where do they go what do they do what has value so on and so forth don't get caught short and uh some people listen and some people don't that's simple as that <laughs> but uh is <laughs> what it is with the amazing but those are those are great pickups for your collection i'm 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 happy to see that you picked them up now there's another area that you went into uh, and you started collecting something i've always said is so overlooked in the hobby and that's team issued photos of the cowboys or any team any collector collects tell our audience uh, about your uh, excursions
1: into this area of the hobby and uh, what you've been picking up yeah, I I think team issue photos are fantastic, and and uh, I've really been encouraged by you know you guys and others on the vintage football community website, um, which uh, you know ask ask your football hobby friends about VFC. It's a great community. Uh, we'd love to see uh, more football collectors join, um, but uh, but I I just happened to kind of be bar- perusing, you know, looking through the buy sell trade, and um, You know, John Spano had listed um, a partial set of 1971 uh, Dallas Cowboys team issue photos. And I thought, you know, these are fantastic images. They're, in a lot of cases, not just portraits. They're kind of staged action photos. Um, So you see kind of like the linemen charging out of their stance or the defensive backs kind of, you know, turning their hips to run with a receiver and that type of thing. So um, they're really – really nice uh, pieces for player and team collectors um, to pick up. So I thought, well, I'll go ahead and and, and buy this uh, partial set, and that kind of started me down the rabbit hole. Um, Steve Liske and, um, you know, Steve Coleman and others have put together what's called the Cowboy's Guide. It's a fantastic reference that covers... <laughs> all the oddball issues and and mainstream issues for Cowboys uh, items from like 1960 to the uh, 1990-ish timeframe. And they have a a PDF that documents all of the Cowboys team issues since they weren't issued each year. Some sets were issued for two or three years in a row. Um, Some uh, photos were issued in multiple years. Um, So they're they're indistinguishable um, across those years. So a couple of the items that are in my 1971 partial set uh, could be 1970s, but there's really no way to know for sure. Um, But uh, what I find interesting about them is, you know, my collection on the Cowboys' side is really oriented around the Doomsday defense um, and the players from the Doomsday defense. So a guy like Mike Geichter, for example, who was a safety of theirs from 63 to 69, um, you know, he's the guy that, you know, hit – uh, Dowler in the end zone in the sixty six championship game um that basically resulted in Max McGee playing so much in Super Bowl one, right, and starring for the Packers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because Dowler had a hurt shoulder. And um so Geichter was a guy who was, you know, a, a starter on the original Doomsday defense in effect, but never had a mainstream item issued for him, but he has team issued photos, right? So getting team issued photos is a great way to get players who had an important part in your team's history but didn't have a mainstream issue. Um, another example is Mike Dicka, who played for the Cowboys, caught a, super, a pass in the Super Bowl uh, 6 um, from Roger Staubach when the Cowboys beat the Dolphins, but he didn't have a mainstream issue Cowboys item, but he has team-issued photos. Um, recently, Rayfield Wright passed away, and it's just a few days after. Um, the Chantilly show and and Jeff and some some other folks and I had met for dinner and I was telling him how excited I was that I had gotten the 1967 Cowboys team issued photo of Rayfield Wright um, in the mail just that week um, where Rayfield was a tight end as a rookie Um, and he's got a great team issued photo where he's kind of uh, catching a football um, in a posed shot with no helmet right so you can see his, his face and things like that. And it's just a a great piece and it came out, you know, five years before his 1972 Topps rookie. So um, team issued photos, fantastic part of the hobby, really difficult to find. Um, And uh, oftentimes you can find stars. You know, that 1967 uh, Rayfield Wright was $70, right? So you can get stars um, in a lot of cases for very reasonable prices compared to what their mainstream items might cost, for example. Yeah. Tell one thing. I one one
2: thing I truly love about the team issued photos is like you said, players who don't have a mainstream card or any other who uh, <laughs> may not be as notable as as the stars may may have a team fo- uh, may have a uh, individual player photo issue for him, which is a great collectible. It's very reasonable, and I do agree with you. The the shots of an, um on these photos is just just classic football as far as i'm concerned and as as you know i got a big packer team issued photo player photo collection i probably got about 250 300 in my collection they're, they're incredible pieces i mean they are really really beautiful pieces if, if you really examine and look at them and it's uh it i would i would yearly during the 1990s, buy whatever new photos the Packers offered. They were selling them uh, individually, and then they stopped that uh, early in uh, the early 2000s. And uh, it's sad because those are those are great photos to collect. So it's a concentration now of probably 50, 60, 70s, 80s, up until the early 90s for uh, an individual uh, team collector if they want to collect it. Uh, also, Eric Stang has a massive collection of Minnesota Vikings, Team issued uh, photos. Also, his collection is amazing. But Steve, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a great pickup for your collection. Beautiful, beautiful pieces. Yeah, thank
3: yeah, you. those idea. are those are great, Steve. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you was and you keyed on it a little bit. There's so much history in those photos. I've I've just you know in seeing your your team issued photos and Bob mentioned his and Eric's and others. You know, I love the backstory behind them. Right, like you were talking about, you know, Max McGee playing in the Super Bowl because of Boyd Dollar getting hurt by a cowboy who you have on the team issue photos or the pre-rookie photos or someone, you know, who had a different number or played a different position. I mean, to me, the team photos unlock so much history that maybe we don't see in the mainstream set because of the Mm -hmm. fact they were taken later and a lot of these things were sorted out already, what position, what number, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just
1: love that kind of that, that aspect of it, you know? Yeah, it's a, that's a great point, Jeff. And, and these team issued photos, at least for the Cowboys anyway, they were often often used like in their media guides, for example. And mm-hmm. there were... In addition to these team-issued photos, they would take photos sometimes from the same shoot or photos from, like, game shots and issue them so that they looked like team-issued photos so they'd have the player's name on the bottom and the team name sometimes their position. And they'd issue these kind of, like, press or media photos. They're also considered team-issued. They're just not necessarily part of the, the team-issued set for a particular year. And um, that kind of media guide tie-over gives you oftentimes another opportunity to learn more about the team. So going back and looking at, like for the Cowboys, I look through the Dave Campbell's uh, annuals. I buy some of the Cowboys uh, issues that have, like, you know, say players I collect on the covers. But oftentimes looking through them, you find out information about what the team's, strategy is so they'll interview coaches for example and they'll say you know this is what i think of our draft class and this is how i think we're going to use these guys and this is what i think of this position group and it's really insightful like you said about the team and what was going on at the time and uh you know why players might have switched positions which was much more common there in the 60s and 70s than it is today um and what the coaches Mm -hmm. saw about the players that made them think you know hey this guy could really be a great tackle for example in rayfield's case because they tried him at at defensive line first before they moved him to offensive tackle. And it really had to do with his agility and his feet that made them think, you know, Hey, he could be a tackle, but it's neat. You find these nuggets about, about the team that you really didn't uh, know. And having these photos used in the media guides is another way you can kind of figure out where they belong in terms of the history of when they were issued, that type of thing. So it, it really does. You start going down kind of the, I don't want to say oddball rabbit hole, but all of the ancillary <laughs> things, right? You start out with the mainstream stuff, right? And then all of the ancillary stuff is really where you find, like you said, tons of information um, about the teams and the players you wouldn't be able to get just from the mainstream cards.
3: Yeah, that's that's great. That's great stuff, Steve. So another set you collect that I would love to hear an update on. Um, I don't collect a lot of modern but I, I do appreciate it. And you, you've you been collecting this Panini 50th Anniversary Hall of Fame autograph set that I think just looks phenomenal. And I know you're working on it. Have you been able to complete that set? Where are you with that set? And tell the audience maybe a few things about that particular set, which is really great.
1: Yeah, this, this set, I, I kind of evangelize this set as much as I can, right? I've I've talked a few people into collecting, you know, their favorite team or, you know, in one case even starting to collect the whole set. But, but basically in 2013, um, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, um, Panini put out a checklist. Um, and if you think of like uh, 1963 Tops, for example, has 170 cards. Um, this checklist was 150 cards. The, the, the difference is is that uh, 1963 you could just go and buy packs and you could assemble The 170 cards in the set Um, here what panini did was they put out a checklist but they didn't release all the cards and then they would show up randomly in various panini products so perhaps you're opening 2013 uh, spectra and you come across a card that's from this set Um, and then you're opening up you know 2014 playbook and maybe you'll come across a card from this set Um, maybe you're opening 2017 flawless or 2020, Immaculate, and you'll come across a card from this set. So they're just randomly inserting cards from this set. Um, so you really have to pay attention, go out and download the checklists, which for some of these modern sets are crazy. I mean, you might, you might see the set has 400 cards in it. When you download the spreadsheet of the checklist, there might be 30,000 items in the spreadsheet with all the parallels, uh, colors, insert sets, and everything, right? So, you know, it, you really have to dig to find the sets that these cards are issued in. But uh, over the years, they've, they've taken their initial 150-card checklist, and they've expanded it a little bit. So some players that weren't in the original 150-card checklist, like Lawrence Taylor, um, were added to the checklist. And that's expanded it up to about 154 or so cards. And then they uh, made the decision in 2019 that for players that played for more than one team, They'll issue an item for them in each jersey, for example. So, Deion Sanders has a Dallas Cowboys uh, and an Atlanta Falcons. He doesn't yet have a a Raven or um, a 49er, but he has a Cowboy and a uh, Falcon. And they're all numbered to 50, right? So, they're randomly inserted um, in various Panini products over the span of years. They haven't all been issued yet. Um, The other thing that they changed in 2019 was is that they started to issue them for um, the Hall of Fame classes that happened after the 50th anniversary. They just have a different symbol on the front. So instead of the 50th anniversary seal in the center, they just have the Hall of Fame seal in the center. So that's expanded the checklist up to 173 items that have been issued so far. So out of the 173 that have been issued so far, I have 172. Um, The one that I don't have is the Bob Greasy. there's a little bit of controversy about that one because I am I know a few collectors online who collect this set also, and uh, none of them have ever seen the Bob Greasy. It was supposed to be issued in 2013. Um, I've contacted Panini multiple times uh, asking them to confirm that the item was, in fact, issued. Uh, I haven't gotten a response. So um, so right now, no one knows what the Bob Greasy looks like. No one's ever seen wow. one. that that I've talked to that collects the set doesn't mean it's not out there, but um, some of these were used for redemptions, which, you know, redemption is maybe I get a, a card that instead of being a card says, you know, in text on it, you know, exchange this for the card that this is supposed to be. And then you have to contact Panini and register your redemption. And sometimes they may not have had items signed and returned in time to get them into production. So you send that card in and when they get it, they send it to you. And you know, sometimes people wait for literally years to get the item that they uh, that they have a redemption card for. Um, so they some of these cards were redemption replacements. <clears throat> so if they had a you know high value card that um, for whatever reason they couldn't get, they may contact you and say, "Hey, we'll send you something of comparable value." Um, the bill parcels, for example, was was issued that way at least in part. Um, but they're they're just tremendous cards. They have like a silver mirror finish on the front. Um, they have an on-card autograph, uh, so no stickers. Um, most of them are in a blue sharpie. A few of them are in a black sharpie. So the the autograph looks very nice on the card. Presents very nicely, and it's just a for me it's a way for me to kind of tip a hat to the rest of the NFL outside of Cowboys land, <laughs> and uh, I get a lot of cool reactions. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> <laughs> I get a lot of I get a lot of neat reactions from people when I tell them you know about my cowboy stuff. They kind of gloss over, but when I get a binder like this out and they can flip through it, invariably somebody will say, you know, oh, I know who Joe Montana is, or I know who Jim Brown is, or I know who Lance Alworth yeah. was. It's neat that he signed this with Bambi on it, you know, that type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. So, so the Hall of Fame signatures set to me is a really neat item for people to look at, <clears throat> whether they're a fan or not. Um, of the NFL because they're just such such cool-looking cards, um, and it's neat that they're all individually touched, that they weren't stickers and things like that, right, for the autographs.
2: That's great. That's great. Another area you got into lately are uh, one of my favorite collectibles, uh, Pocket Schedules, and uh, tell us mm-hmm. about your ongoing uh, Cowboys
1: Pocket Schedule collection. Yeah, so so pocket schedules, um, for the Cowboys, I guess, kind of lucky that a lot of the players I collect, um, you know, the Chuck Howleys, the Lillys, the uh, Harvey Martins, and so on, uh, those guys have um, pocket schedules where they're featured on the front, and um, from the early 60s through the early 80s, the Cowboys had a partnership with Braniff Airlines and they put out a series of pocket schedules that are just slightly larger than a standard size card. So they fit nicely into like card saver ones for storing them. Um, And they have like a silver tone, silver and gray tone background image with a player in the foreground. And they're just some fantastic action shots. Um, There's a really great one from Uh, 1973, where it's Walt Garrison kind of plunging through the line with the football um, and a really kind of determined look on his face. The 74 um, card is Harvey Martin terrorizing Joe Theismann, which is probably my favorite of all of them. Um, The 75 has uh, Ed Tuttle-Jones sacking uh, Mr. Sullivan, a quarterback from the Falcons. And there's a couple of really great uh, Drew Pearson Touchdown catch in one and uh, open field run in another. I mean, they're just great pieces um, for either team collectors or player collectors that kind of give you a sense of what the team was thinking. You know, it's interesting to think about, well, why was this player picked for the front this year? Um, You know, so you get to go back and research what they did the year before, um, that type of thing, just to try and get a feel uh, for why they might have been picked um that type of thing so there's a lot of inquiring to do around the items themselves but i kind of got started with this um when i was offered the opportunity to purchase a a 1961 item um, that was a really cool kind of uh handfold item like a pamphlet that was issued to season ticket holders right so the cowboys started playing in 1960 this item would have been created in the spring or summer of nineteen sixty one um so it has cowboys action photos from their first year, right? so you wouldn't have been able to have something like this uh, the year before unless you know it was issued after. The team had started to practice in training camp so this is real live nfl game action photos for the cowboys in a cowboys publication basically for probably one of the first times right so soliciting people to uh, become season ticket holders for the cowboys it's got a schedule in it but it talks about you know the 1961 team um, and it shows pictures Uh, of Don Perkins in his Cowboys uniform. Um, It's got Bob Lilly in his TCU uniform because he was their number one pick, right? So it was before Bob Lilly's first game with the team. The 61 draft had happened uh, late December 1960. Um, So Bob Lilly is pictured prominently. Um, There's a great diving catch of Billy Houghton in the center. Um, And the schedule itself is on the, the inside of the back cover, And this thing is a little bit taller than a regular card and maybe the width of three cards, and then it folds open. And, um, you know, the schedule is on the inside of the back cover, but on the back cover, it's got this great um, advertisement for the teams that are on the schedule, right? So it's got pictures of a player from each of the teams. So, you know, when the Eagles come to town, they've got a picture of Tommy McDonald. Uh, they've got Bobby Lane pictured on the back uh, with the Steelers team emblem above him. There's a picture of Jim Brown on the back with the uh, Browns emblem from the time. John David Crow and so on. So it's just a really cool piece. The Packers are there for you, Bob, with with Paul Hornung. Um, so it's just a really great piece uh, that kind of got me hooked on trying to find information about you know schedules, season ticket promotions, those types of things. And uh, that kind of led me down the path of trying to assemble um, a uh, pocket schedule run. And right now, I need four to complete the run back to 1970. And then uh, for the 60s, you know, I have a number of needs because um, they're more expensive and very difficult to find. Some kind of opportunistically adding the ones from the 60s when they when when I get a chance. But um, really trying to to complete the run back to 1970. Um, like I said, four more to go, but these are just fantastic pieces, particularly this uh, era from the mid-'60s to the uh, early-'80s where the Braniff schedules were put out because they're just so so neat-looking um, in terms of their presentation and very much like a collectible trading card. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's a great,
3: awesome collect- great collectible. Wow. Yeah, those are an underappreciated as well, right? I mean, those are definitely underappreciated. You mentioned you're missing some things, so you need that one card from your Panini set, and your mm-hmm. pocket schedules. You need some some items. What are the major things on your want list right now? What do you What are you really after?
1: Well, um, I'm still after the Don Perkins 1962 tops, um, rookie in a PSA nine. Um, that was the the third card that was in that Gridiron Grates, uh advertisement, right? So um, that one is one that I'm really after. Um, I have a couple of other sets that I'm within a card of completing uh, or two cards of completing. So I'm looking at trying to to track those down. Right now, I need a, a 1998 Michael Irvin PSA 10 to complete my Irvin set. Um, that'll be the, the first one of those in all PSA 10. Um, on the registry. It's kind of weird, right? You think in the 90s, there were uh, a huge boom of card production and there's tons of cards out there. It's just that not many have been graded because for the longest time, it wasn't really profitable. There weren't people buying those, right? So it's really people that are collecting players that are submitting those. Right now, it's expensive to submit cards for grading. So it kind of has brought some of those set runs of mine to a halt. Um, but hopefully prices will drop on on grading and I have all the items that I need to submit um for those set runs that are kind of on the more modern side. But um but the Bob Greasy Hall of Fame autograph, that would be a, a great item for me to find. Um of course, you know, Jeff I'm also uh you know, uh a possible Maroons collector, although my collection is significantly smaller than yours. <laughs> But I'm still looking for the last four um, 1926 Pottsville Maroons real photo postcards to complete my set. So I'm looking for the uh, Keneally, the Osborne, um, the uh, Barry, and the Latone. Uh, those are the four that I need. Um, great players. Uh, but uh, those would be neat to come across. Um, <clears throat> but on the Cowboys' front, uh, I'm looking for... Earlier in the 60s, team shoot photos, um, particularly Bob Lilly, um, you know, I'd really like to get my hands on a 61 or a 62-era um, uh, Lilly Tima shoot photo. Um, George Andres on that list too from that time frame. Um, I haven't seen them up for sale, um, so um, those are items that I've been looking for. Um, they're not necessarily um, going to be very expensive, which is great. I hope Uh, (laughs) maybe I jinx myself now, but, um, but I'd love to get, I'd love to get some, some of those. Um, And uh, so that's, that's really what I'm looking for right now, Jeff.
2: Steve, I'm curious. Did you, uh, do you have a collection of the cowboy police sets that were issued?
1: I forgot. I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I have uh, basically ungraded um, complete set run. For them from 79 to 83 and uh, I do have some of them graded for my player sets Um, but there's some great uh, Cowboys police cards that were issued there Um, and some some of the shots that pop to mind like the the 79 Cliff Harris um, where Joe Pasarczyk is about to get nailed in the back I mean there's some really nice uh, photos in those as well a lot of them are team photos the Drew Pearson uh, catching a ball over the middle in the 79 set is a really good one too. Um, the 83 Pearson is a nice one where he's catching the ball over his shoulder. Um, so there's some there's some really nice uh, photos in those police sets as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always uh, thought those are a great addition to any team collector uh, for any team, especially if they did issue those particular uh, set runs. Uh, next up, And our last question that we normally end our uh, interview with, what, if any advice, can you give a beginning collector in football cards or football memorabilia?
1: Well, um, I think the, the best advice I would give someone is don't collect by yourself. And, um, and what I mean by that is, is that, uh, talk to other collectors, um, it gives you an opportunity to learn about not only what they're interested in and why, but it gives you the opportunity to see other things. Um, it gives you the opportunity to have other people aware of things you're interested in. So, uh, like I said earlier, when I upgraded those cards from my graded collection, I, it was a collaboration with another collector. Um, you have the 1926 Potsville Maroons uh, real photo postcards that – Um, you know, Jeff and and Joe and I worked together to buy um, was a collaboration. So there's, you know, something very rewarding about finding an item for your collection, but there's also something really rewarding about finding something for a friend uh, and seeing them be excited about uh, finding it um, and adding it to their collection. Uh, So I really think that For a beginning collector sometimes collecting can be insular you know you're focused on looking at your sets looking at your checklists figuring out what it is that you want to do but i'd really encourage people you know to engage other collectors find out what's interesting about what you have and what they have um and really spend time you know getting to know the people you know it's always it's always something that comes up in conversations with collectors you know the stuff is the stuff, and everybody likes the stuff, and everybody has stuff they want. But the thing that really kind of makes you hang around, I think, for the long haul, in a lot of cases, is the relationships that you make with people, the opportunity that you have to share what you have and uh, share what you've learned, and the opportunity to hear what other people have uh, learned along the way and see some of the things that they appreciate and hear why they appreciate it. I agree. On yeah, I couldn't echo those. Uh, Very, very
2: much. The friendships you make in this hobby can last a lifetime. And uh, I know I've known a lot of people for many years over the years. And uh, it's nice to see new blood come into the hobby, and it's nice to see enthusiasm in the hobby. And we also have to nurture new collectors to come into the hobby so that one day our collections can be passed on to uh, new collectors and and they're preserved, and the history of the game is preserved. And it's, it's essential, to say the least. Steve, thanks for being on this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks for all the updates on your collection. You've got a great collection. Uh, I uh, love hearing about it, and uh, I know you'll be successful in finding your items on, on your want list over the the next few uh, months or years, whenever it may be. Thanks for being on. Thank today.
1: you, gentlemen. Thanks,
2: Steve. Thanks, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. All right, we're down to almost two minutes. And we're going to go into our two-minute warning and wrap up. Jeff, I'm going to hand off to you. What you pick up on today's show? Well, first I got to thank Steve for the shout out for
3: Vintage Football Community. I'll let him know his checks in the mail. Uh, but uh, but seriously, these are all related topics, right? I mean, what I loved about our conversation with Steve and why I love to spend time with him talking about the hobby is. While he's, you know, uh, primarily known as a cowboy collector, as everyone heard, he's got a lot of balls in the air in a lot of different related directions and even some unrelated directions. And to me, that's, that's a sign of someone who is passionate about the hobby, who loves to dig into things and understand them, and as he mentioned, share them. Right. And, and you and I have talked about the fact that for this hobby to grow, uh, we need people like Steve. We need people who start somewhere, you know, probably based on their team affiliation or what they collected as a kid. But then over time, just see the, the vast opportunities to learn about other things, dig into them, share those, build relationships with people. And... Um, Gosh, he's got a heck of a collection and he knows so much about it, right? As he's talking, I was just thinking about Steve knows this stuff cold. He could roll his eyes back and just he just recites knowledge about what he collects, which I think is very refreshing. I don't know what uh, what your thoughts on that are, but I, I just really enjoy that.
2: Right. I agree 100%, Jeff. Because again, someone who's passionate about the about the hobbies, what we need in the hobby, knowledge, expanding knowledge, sharing knowledge—that's what it's all about. And uh, in all seriousness, VFC has done so much for the hobby, in expanding the hobby, expanding the knowledge in the hobby. It's like you're in a pro football or in a football hall of fame on a daily basis. Seeing the stuff that's discussed and seeing the items that are posted—it's just truly amazing to me. Truly amazing. Well, we're almost out of time. And, again, I'd like to uh, thank you, Jeff, for filling in uh, for Joe today for um, uh, with your busy schedule. I uh, thank Steve for being on. And uh, we'll be back, uh, hopefully, within a couple of weeks with a new series of shows. And until then, thanks for listening. One last, uh, with 10 seconds to go, Issue 76 of Good Iron Graces in the Mail. Hopefully, people are receiving Woo-hoo! it now. Uh, I'm sure you'll be—you'll uh, enjoy our newest. Show. Thanks for listening,
3: and we'll see you Thanks, again. Thanks,
0: Bob. Enjoyed it. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude.